Hello, and welcome to Measuring Violence. My name is Elle Rochford. I am a postdoctoral researcher with the Center for the Study and Prevention of Gender-Based Violence, and I'm here with my new co-host. Hi, my name is Abigail Merritt, and I'm an undergrad senior here at the University of Delaware, and I study women and gender studies and psychology. And we're here to talk about sports and violence today with Caitlin. Hi, everyone. I'm Caitlin Fultz. I am currently a doctoral candidate at the University of Maryland in College Park, but I've done work on this also at George Mason University, where I got my first master's. Great. Thanks so much for joining us today. So this project that we're talking about today, can you tell us a little bit about what it is and how you got started? I guess I'll start with how I got started. So I was at um, George Mason University. And in 2019, I was at a conference called NAS, the North American Society for the Sociology of Sport or something along those lines. There's three S's and nobody can ever remember the order. And so I was at NAS and Dr. Angie Hattery and Dr. Earl Smith were there presenting and they were my advisors at the time. And they presented on how we need to hold athletes and people in the sports world accountable for violence against women and gender-based violence. And so this was fall of 2019. And so then, of course, the pandemic happened and I graduated. Professor Hattery and Smith moved to Delaware to start the center here at Delaware. And I remember I was camping and I was watching ESPN. And there was a story about how Chauncey Billups was being hired or considered for a head coaching position. And there was a lot of backlash because of allegations that were against him from early in his career. And a a little about me, I grew up a huge basketball fan, loved men's basketball more. And I'm a huge Wizards fan, unfortunately for myself, because they never win. But Chauncey Billups was actually one of my favorite players growing up, and I had never heard of these allegations. And so I looked it up and having built a database now was one of like the worst rape cases I've ever read. And so I texted Professor Hattery and I said, hey, are you still doing this work? And she said, yes, we are. Do you want to build a database? And so summer of 2021, I started building uh, this database for the center. And yeah, it's a database that covers any instance of gender-based violence in the sports world. So that could be uh, intimidation or hazing, things like that. But it can also be rape, murder, intimate partner violence, assault, and for anybody in the sports world. So the sports world is kind of, if you think of the term like in athletics, it would be anybody that um, is associated with sports. So it can be that it can be athletes, but it can also be coaches, trainers, doctors, or even commentators. If they have a loose tie to the sports world, they are included in this database if they have perpetrated these crimes. So I'm curious, do we know, or is this database working towards, is gender-based violence more common among athletes versus non-athletes? I think that there's similar rates, or it might be, I can't remember, I've looked before, and I think that there's similar rates. But nobody really studies the studies as a phenomenon in sport. It's just not really looked at. 
a lot of people don't want to think about, you know, their favorite athletes in these ways. I mean, I think of Kobe Bryant. I grew up, I loved, I loved Kobe. That was another one that I didn't realize until I was in college. And like, I think about like, I grew up like idolizing him. And then I realized, you know, he has a a sexual assault uh, allegation against him as well. And people, they become so attached to these athletes. They think that they know them and they think that they're like personally like invested when in reality, like we have to think of everyone as complex people and, you know, we're not all perfect. And, you know, they, they could have committed these or perpetuated these um, instances of violence. And so, yeah, people just don't want to think of their, their favorite athletes or favorite coaches this way, because that, that can scar their, their Sunday afternoons when they're watching football in some way, they have to think about it a little more critically. Well, and this, this, I am uh, famously not well-versed in sports, but I'm from Cleveland where the Cleveland Browns recently hired a quarterback who had numerous allegations, (laughs) court cases, right? And I remember when Michael Vick was uh, being prosecuted for animal abuse and the amount of outrage about that compared to the amount of outrage there's almost like in football the the sentiment is well if you're going to date a football player that's just sort of what you should expect Mm -hmm. I don't know how common a narrative that is in the stories you're seeing I I don't I mean I don't so what what we do in the database is we really just try to document it So in the database, you won't see a lot of the, I mean, you'll see some of the responses like Ray Rice was a play for the Baltimore Ravens and there became video of him, like literally dragging his wife into an elevator girlfriend. I can't remember what she was at the time into um, an elevator. And like, there was a lot of backlash towards her and like, she ended up apologizing, like saying that she, she played a part in it. And so a lot of times the narratives around it are twisted to, or even the timing of when they came out, like if, if a player's doing well, and then, you know, all of this comes out and they're like, well, why is she coming out now? Which I don't think is necessarily unique to sport. You know, we saw that with the 45th president. And when Pete, when allegations came out about him, but uh, there's definitely a lot of critique that women undergo women and, and other victims. Uh, they don't just have to be women, obviously <laughs> undergo when they come out and they, and they talk about the violence that these people in the sports world have perpetrated. And I'm curious, how do you think this relates to the accountability or standard set for future athletes coming into the profession? Yeah, I was, I I thought y'all were going to ask me about policy. I didn't know if it would be this early or a little later in the game, but no, I I think that, and and I've thought about this a lot, um, but pretty much any policy that they create um, is better than what we're doing now because there isn't a policy really. I mean, like, like I was saying, you know, Deshaun Watson, you know, got hired last year after 20 plus allegations against him. And there was a lot of outrage that he even had, I think he ended up with half a season of a fine or something. There was allegation or there was a lot of outrage that he even had that much of a fine. And it's like, 
what? Like, no, like, why is this man still even allowed to play football and allowed to have a platform? But, you know, people in the sports world are getting away with committing violence. So any, any policy going forward is going to be better as far as what like that policy looks like. I think that that's up to the professional leagues to really sit with and come up with their own way of, of deciding how they're going to hold people accountable. You know, I think holding someone accountable outside of the criminal legal system, a lot of times the response is that it's taking away their civil rights. And that's not what's happening. You're more just saying like, no, you perpetuated, you you committed this violence. So you, you can't be part of the community anymore. There's a different level of evidence that needs to be, you know, in the, in the criminal system, it's, you know, without a reasonable doubt, in these systems, it's beyond preponderance of evidence, right? And so if they can prove that you've in some way, like they think that you did this, like you might not be able to have the privilege of being a part of this community and that's okay. And so, yeah, now if we're talking about like legislative and legal policy, I'm not someone that sees legal policy as like the end all be all because I I realized how connected that is to the, the criminal legal system and the criminal justice system. And I'm very hesitant to ever push forward those policies because I realize the violence that the criminal justice system perpetuates in and of itself. Um, so I view I view like legal policy as I think of it more as like harm reduction, but it's it's not going to be harm elimination, and it's going to be harm reduction for a very specific group of people while perpetuating violence against like another per, another group of people, right? So I think legal policies are never going to eliminate gender-based violence. Um, that's just not how it how it's going to work. It can reduce it to a certain degree, but also while perpetuating violence against other communities, right? So I think when we're thinking about like legal policies and how to and how to you know deal with gender-based violence going forward, I think there's two group or two groups we really need to look at. One is Black feminists. You know, Angela Davis has just released a book with some colleagues, I want to say last year, if not the year before, but I'm pretty sure it was last year, called Abolition Feminism Now. And then there's some legal scholars that are doing great work as well. Lee Goodmark, who is at the University of Maryland's uh, law school, done a lot of work on like decriminalizing domestic violence and approaching the topic from a more abolitionist perspective. So I think you know, the next steps, when we think of next steps, we have to do so with Black feminist theory and abolitionist theory in mind. And finally, I'd say the biggest thing that has to change is the culture around sport. I think that is more important. Like, I played sports all my life, and I have the earliest memories of, like, being told I was less than because I was a girl playing sports versus a boy. And while that may seem minuscule or not connected to like this bigger issue of gender-based violence in sport, it is. You're teaching, just as you're teaching me as a little girl, what my value is in sports, you're also teaching little boys, like women are less than, you know? And so changing the culture and changing the idea that if you perpetuate this violence, that it's okay, you'll still be able to be a part of the community, you'll still be able to be a big star quarterback and it's fine, like changing that culture is one of the biggest things as well that I think is really important. Well, I'm glad you brought up kind of women's sports in this because thinking about kind of gender segregation for men's teams, you typically have male coaches, male trainers, but for women's teams, you also have male coaches, male trainers, male medical staff. So women have to interact with men in authority, but men in sports are kind of in a, a silo 
But I wonder if you could speak to the violence in women's sports and and what the database is doing with that. Yeah, and I think we're seeing a large number of those instances come out as of recently, Um, especially I'm thinking soccer and gymnastics. We're seeing a lot of that um, being uncovered. But I agree, like we we as women, like when we play sports, we're, you know, exposed to men, whereas men don't have to. It's very rare that they're exposed to women. And when they are, they're more in caretaker roles or cheerleaders or things like that. And it's a different dynamic. It puts you at a different exposure and a different, you're opened up for potential violence, you know, sport isn't necessarily a safe space. I mean, I don't know that it is for anybody, but it definitely isn't for women. And so, yeah, I mean, we, we can think of the Larry Nassers of the world, you know, I really don't think that he's the only one, you know, the only one that you know, been doing this. I think that there's probably a lot more coming that we haven't heard about because the other thing is with, with a lot of those big time doctors is big time coaches, team owners, what have you, they are in a position to be protected and they will be protected. And so, yeah, I think it, it's, it's very complicated to be a woman athlete, right? <laughs> you spoke on some violence being more, I would say like with football, it's to be expected that some type of violence occurs. What are some risk factors that you would say you've noticed through studying your databases that may increase the risk of violence in sports, like whether it be fame or the level or the type of sport? I would say, I don't know if I would say that it's expected in football, but you're definitely, it is a risk factor for sure. I mean, you think about the sports that rely on violence in them, football and basketball to a certain degree, it's, you view it differently, right? But football is a, football is a big one because it's a very, it's a very violent game. It's a very physical game. Also paired with, I also study concussions, right? And what do, what do concussions do? They affect your frontal lobe and your emotional regulation. That's a huge, a huge risk factor to perpetuating this violence. But I also, I would say playing sports that are extremely physical. I haven't researched like the fame aspect and things like that. I'm interested in that, but I'm like not well-versed enough to say like, definitely it's the fame that plays into it. But I mean, it wouldn't shock me that it does. Um, You know, there has to be like some ego and psychological side effects that go with it, which honestly leads into the culture. Like if the culture's saying you can get away with it, you're you're probably going to test the waters just because you can. Thanks. This is this is so fascinating. I'm curious about what your experience with collecting this data has been and with getting it out to the public. Yeah. So collecting, like I said, I started summer of 2021 um, and there's been other people helping me throughout. It hasn't just been me by any means. So I wrote down like a few of the stats just so that I could get them right. When I'm telling you all we have right now, we have about 300 individual instances of gender-based violence in sport. That doesn't mean that like each, each instance is by a unique person, like some people perpetuate multiple times, right? But they're only like 300 instances of gender-based violence. Um, Like I said, that could be murder, intimate partner violence, rape, assault. It's all sports that we've collected. Now, do I think we have representation from all sports? Not currently. It's a small team doing this. You know, we can only find what we can find. Um, But we span back to 1974 right now. Um, Obviously, if we find some from before then, we're going to include them. 
Um, and it's anyone in the sports world, coaches, athletes, trainers, commentators, et cetera. One thing that we do, uh, just to protect the integrity of the database and honestly protect the database legally a little bit is it has to be a claim that is substantiated by a newspaper article that is giving it some light. Yeah. Like that's substantiating it in some way. Right. So it can't just be someone on Twitter saying this athlete assaulted me, not saying that I personally don't believe the person on Twitter, because honestly, it very well could be true. But just to protect the database a little bit, we, we don't include that until it's like included in a newspaper article that we can cite and say, this isn't us that's saying this, this is a newspaper article that's saying this. So yeah, the experience has been combing a, a heck of a lot, uh, combing through a lot of data. It's been like, what's the saying, like drinking from a fire hose, like you Google gender based violence in sport and you have all of all of the all of the instances but i think we've done a really good job at at you know getting a really big chunk documented and i think um once it goes live there's going to be like a button where you can like refer cases um refer edits to cases and so I expect once it goes live um there will be a lot of uh a lot more suggested to us as far as getting people to publish on it, people don't want to talk about it. Um, you know, it's been hard to get somebody to pick up the story because it's a touchy subject for a lot of people. I don't think it should be. I mean, we're not making anything up. It's all in the news, but people don't want, people don't want to talk about it. And it, and it links back to what I said earlier. People don't want to talk about their favorite athlete, you know, maybe not being this idol that we thought that they were. So yeah, it's, it's touchy. People don't want to publish on it, but it's never going to change if we don't start talking about it. Yeah. Thanks. No, this is so fascinating. Cause I think there is, you know, I think a lot of people latched on to the gymnastics story one, because it was horrific. The scale and the scope of the abuse was awful, but it also doesn't complicate our enjoyment of gymnastics in the same way that knowing maybe a player on your favorite team, right? I think it makes people uncomfortable, one, because they don't want to mess with sports, but two, because you have to grapple with there are a lot of people in our society who have committed gender-based violence and they don't just disappear. Right. Um, and, and I think it wouldn't, sh I, again, I haven't done this, like, I haven't researched this specifically, but it wouldn't shock me that the demographics of the victim could have also played a lot into that. You know, we see, I, I mean, you know, we see when white women and white girls go missing, it's all in the media when black girls and, and girls of other races go missing, you know, we don't hear about it. And I mean, who's, who are a lot of the gymnasts? They're, they're young white pretty girls. And so, yeah, you would, it, it is going to make it into the media um, because of the racism that's built into the media and, and society, you know? So I'm sure that that also played a big role into it. Is there anything we haven't covered about the database that you want to share? One thing that I was worried about when I started building this database was I, in, in any way, shape or form, did not want to perpetuate the myth of the black rapist, right? I was very aware of it from the beginning and I didn't want to build something that could any way, shape or form be used in a way that's not, that's not correct, right? And it's, it's perpetuating this very racist myth. Of course, this myth of the black rapist was written about, um, in the early 1980s, I think by Angela Davis and women race and class. And I understood how, how we had to be very careful about that the entire time we were doing it. You know, I knew football players were going to be 
represented in the sample because of what we talked about earlier. You know, football players play a very violent sport. That is a risk factor paired with concussions. That's a risk factor, right? And so I also then thought about, well, who's socialized to play football in, in the U.S.? It's Black men, right? So how, how could this potentially be misconstrued and linked in a way that I was not going to be a part of? That's not something I believe, right? And so looking at the database now, we do see instances of individual Um, or we see individual instances of Black men committing violence in the database that is roughly correlated with the demographics of the league. So for me, that is one thing that's saying, okay, this is disproving the myth. But what further disproves the myth of the Black rapist is of our victims that are included in the database, white men are responsible for 2.5 times more victims than any other demographic. And so that this, this proof, you know, this, I don't want to say proves, but this challenges, you know, that myth of the black rapist, which was very important. I did not want, you know, it to be misconstrued that way, but it also makes sense, right? When we think of the power dynamics within sport, um, Bill Roden in a book called $40 million slaves wrote, uh, or theorized this idea called the plantation metaphor. And it's the idea, if you look at the labor, uh, dem- the labor layout on a chattel slave plantation, you will see we have white owners at the top, black labor at the bottom, right? And he's saying when we look at sports, that translates pretty well. Obviously, it's not a perfect metaphor. You know, there's we're not saying the athletes are be treating, being treated exactly like enslaved peoples, but you can see the 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 translation playing out. We have white men primarily in ownership positions and CEO positions in these doctor positions. And then we have a lot of black labor at the bottom. So who's going to be protected, right? It's not going to be the black, the black player that commits this, or even, I mean, it doesn't even matter the race. It's not going to be the labor that is committing this violence. Instead, it's going to be the owners, the doctors that are protected. And, and we see that playing out. You know, we see Larry Nasser got away with this for a while. We see Jerry Sandusky got away with it for a while, even though Joe Paterno was, I'm pretty sure he, he was told about it. And then, you know, if we look at our local football team, you know, the Washington Commanders, the owner, Dan Snyder, has been committing this violence for a while, but he has been protected because of where he is. And so, yeah, I think... We have to think about race in the database. It's not something we can't think about. We can't think about this in a colorblind way. Um, and I, I think our database proves that the myth of the black rapist is not, it's not playing out. Um, and instead, it's maybe we should be looking at white men and how they are being protected and allowed to perpetuate this violence. Well, and one of the reasons I'm so excited to dig into this database as a researcher is exactly what you're talking about. Because my suspicion would be that Black players who commit gender-based violence get more media coverage and actually face consequences compared to their white colleagues. It very well could be true. Just some more stats from our database. So of our cases, so 75% of our cases, the perpetrators, whether they were charged, arrested, or convicted, it doesn't matter if any of that happened, they still continued to play or to coach. They were not, you know, sat out while the investigation was happening. And of the four, we have 40 cases, 40% of cases led to conviction. 85% of those 
40% still continue to coach and play after the conviction. And so, and about 15% of our database were arrested for more than one of the acts, one act of gender-based violence. Um, and players or coaches associated with football were make up over half of our, just over half of our database. But yeah, it wouldn't shock me <laughs> if Black players received a harsher penalty when they did commit this violence and it made its way into the media. The only thing that would complicate that is if they were a star player like Deshaun Watson. You know, I used, I had a professor that once said, um, the dollar is the white man's God. And I think about that a lot in sport, right? Because nobody, you know, they're not going to protect their sideline player that's not out there all the time. But Deshaun Watson, who's bringing in a heck of a lot of money for them, they're going to protect with everything that they have because it affects their bottom line. That's the only reason they don't actually care about this player, care about the money. And so that's also something to think about. I think it's interesting you bring that up because I think you see that a lot in colleges too. The extent universities will go to protect student athletes who perpetuate violence to continue to get that funding in. Right. No, I think that that's so true. I mean, this isn't something that's unique to professional professional sports. Like it happens, like you said, at the college level. We actually have one entry where he committed violence. His name's Frosty Rucker, I believe. He's committed violence at every single level of his playing career, high school, college, and professional. And that was a really startling one to look at too, because, you know, what interventions did we just not, you know, what interventions did we not think about that could have, you know, stopped him when he committed this as like literally a boy to now he's still committing as, as a full grown adult. Um, And that's something to think about as well. So what do you hope people will do with this database? Um, Hopefully by the time this airs, the database will be live. What do you hope people take away from it or use it to build? I just hope it's used in a way where we continue to talk about, you know, gender-based violence in sport. I think, you know, I said earlier, one of the most important things to, to happen is we change the culture in sport. And I, I think that that's never going to happen if we don't talk about what has happened in sport thus far, the violence that has occurred towards women, towards racialized minorities, towards uh, sexualized minorities. Um, and I think by not talking about it, we're really just, we're being extremely complicit and allowing things to continue to happen. And I hope that it's used in a way that continues to bring light to this issue and hopefully really create cultural change within sport. Right. Thank you so much. How do you you. recommend listeners get started? uh, If they want to learn more about this topic or if they want to find the database, what would you recommend? Yeah. So the database when it's live will be on smithandhattery.com slash GBV. So like gender-based violence, GBV. Um, It'll eventually move over to the center's website. Right now, there's just some technological difficulties with that, but for right now, that's where it'll be. Also, we will have a Twitter page where we just like basically give updates on these cases as they come out. That will be at GBV, again, like gender-based violence, at GBV sport data. So yeah, those are the two main ways. Also, of course, following the center, the center will be sharing all of our stuff as well. All right. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks for having Uh, me. I believe you also have an op-ed 
in Brookings. Yeah. So the moment we publish op-ed, it'll be live. A special thanks to Manelli Marcelino for the intro and outro music on this podcast. And a special thank you to the University of Delaware Center for the Study and Prevention of Gender-Based Violence.